Indeed, the wounds of Christ, the death of Christ, has paid ransom for us all. The debt is paid, and let the people of God rejoice in their redemption through faith in Christ this morning, O Lord. Let us attend to the reading and the proclamation of your holy word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles again this morning to Romans chapter 1. We're still in Romans chapter 1 when I began what looks like it may become a series. Uh, In Romans, there was such an outpouring of testimonies from the congregation of people that were hoping I'd go into Romans for one reason or another. And uh, as a church, I, I mean, no one told me that until I did it. Um, I don't really take requests, but I kind of do. Um, and so I'm going to ask you to open this morning to the, to the book of Romans, which I've referred to so many times in other sermons. You can almost not preach without quoting a verse from the book of Romans. It contains nearly, if not every, great doctrine of the church in it. Um, in significant way, it's one of the. Uh, it's been called one of the great cathedrals, if you will, of the uh, of the Christian Church. And it's a great doctrinal statement of the Apostle Paul to the great Church of Rome, the longest book, uh, longest epistle in the New Testament. And so, I ask you to turn your attention there again today to verses 24 through 32 of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter one. And so we read. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud boasters, Inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same but also approve of those who practice them. O Father, in Jesus' name, enlighten us as to the deep meaning of this and the sense of wrath that hangs over this world for having abandoned the truth for the lie and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So the amen is actually right in the text. It wasn't the end of my reading, although it may have sounded like that if you weren't following along 
I read from the New King James, by the way, and there are few Bibles that you can turn to for that. I, um, you know, Bibles have different translations, and uh, some represent um, thoughts and words differently than others. Uh, but I'll, I'll use the New King James just to let you know. Verse 24 begins, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their body among themselves. Friends, this is not a pleasant place in Scripture to go to. But it does reveal a reality that is necessary in the preaching of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul is intent on making sure that this Roman body of Christians that he did not found are founded in the proper doctrines and understanding of mankind. We have to know ourselves if we're going to know the remedy for our situation. We have to know ourselves and the depth of our depravity if we're to see the glorious gift that Christ gives us in paying for our sins and the necessity of it. All these things are necessary. I hear so many preachers, I hear nationally renowned preachers today who say they do not talk about sin because people don't want to hear about it. I heard one nationally known preacher say he doesn't talk about sin. He's not an expert in that. Well, I'm going to tell you something, friends. I'm not an expert in a lot of things. There's only one thing I'm surely an expert in, and that is sin. And I intend to teach it to the church based on the writings of this apostle and his inspiration by the Holy Spirit. We are a depraved world. Since the Garden of Eden, that has been the case. So we've been looking into this book of Romans for a couple of sessions now. And So after the apostle offers his joyous personal salutation, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, to the church at Rome, he takes them on this dire journey of understanding as to just what kind of world we live in and just what kind of God our God is. Friends, we dare not say that this message was only for the Roman era because those pagans were so depraved. We dare not make that conclusion. Friends, we have not evolved as a race. If anything, there has been devolution. But we have not evolved. We are as perverse in our thoughts and our habits as any Roman walking the streets of Rome in the first century, friends. And that's the message to the church. The need for Christ has not changed. The nature of man does not change. It does not improve. And so, why do I say that the outlook of the Apostle Paul is a dire outlook? I think it's quite obvious. It's due to statements like these. The wrath of God is revealed. It's revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Men who what? Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If there was ever a time in history when truth was suppressed daily, hourly, round the clock on a cable loop, it is today. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Friends, what do liars do? What do you expect them to do? They lie. And speaking of the mass of men in the world, he continues with the diatribe. He goes on. And speaking of the race of man, he says, they became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Friends, when you put God away for long enough, you get very, very dark and dire. And may not even notice for a while, because when the cat's away, they say, the mice play for a time. 
He writes, professing to be wise, they became fools. Friends, there's a lot of that going around. I said a long time ago, a sure sign of mass confusion is a growing number of experts. And we have so many experts today to confuse us. And so few experts today to enlighten us. They changed the glory of what was incorruptible, God. The only real glory in the universe. They changed the glory of God into an image made like corruptible man. And if that wasn't enough, they changed his glory to look like birds or four-footed animals or creeping things. Have you ever seen those old statues of Egypt with that dog-faced God that they have all over the place? They changed the glory of God into into an animal, the things created by God. There's a glory in everything, but the glory of God only is in God himself. And if the apostle's picture of depraved humanity was not enough, he adds what can only be described as a hopeless existence. He notes that there is a God. He is a glorious, incorruptible being. He's made himself known. He's known by the things that are made. We have his testimony on it. He can be discovered in the elements of creation that exist all around us. Friends, the majesty of mountain ranges ranges bespeak the glory of God. Friends, if you haven't traversed the country recently, there is so much glory on this continent, it is almost unimaginable. Think of the immensity of the firmament above, the orderly placement of the sun and the moon and the functions that they provide, delineating day from night, and the cycles that man must use to work and to rest and the ordering of our lives. All are there for us to see and to speak to us of their origins. Each one of them has a sermon to preach about their creator. Every living creature, great and small, from the insects that pollinate the blossoms of trees to the creeping things that fortify the soil for crops to grow in them, We have seasons and seeds and growing crops for human consumption. And friend, what about about this? What about the love that's between us? Where do you suppose that comes from? We have spouses and children and homes and gardens and profitable work and satisfying lives. And yet we, who above all the creatures of the earth who ought to show gratitude to our provider, relegate his glory to the mere products of his hands. And we lower the glory of our spiritual father to the dirt that he created for worms to crawl in. He's reduced to the status of animals or worms or insects, and we remain monstrously ungrateful for all of his provision and for all the blessed knowledge of his existence and his beneficence and his mercy and his love. Where is the gratitude, the apostle asks? It's not in man of himself. And what's worse than this? Man is not content to belittle their God, not content to remain thankless for his provision, but rather they engage in every form of sinful activity as if to purposely offend the deity and to ignore his gracious gift of life and abundance, not to mention his image Within us, we are made in the image of God. Friends, man is his crowning achievement. 
He made Adam to rule over all the animals. He even named them. And then he gave him Eve. What a great gift. The woman to the man. What a great gift. Where is our thankful hearts for such a great gift as that? And yet the heart of man is so wicked and rebellious that the long withholding of his retribution becomes our invitation to sink lower and lower in our depravity. Didn't the Apostle Peter say something like, well, it seems like God's delaying. Let's eat, drink, and be merry and go about our ways and indulge ourselves in every wickedness. And so the Apostle writes to remind the saints that after mankind has exhausted the long-suffering nature of our Lord, he has turned away from us. He has given us up, the Apostle writes. And so Paul informs his beloved brethren that the condition of man and the earth is truly hopeless. It is beyond repair. And so we read, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They are impotent to rescue themselves, friends, and they're blind to their need of rescue. Most men just think they're okay. Indeed, the opening chapter of the book is as dark and hopeless as it could be. Now, friends, have you ever considered that if the gospel stories ended with the crucifixion, imagine if the last chapter was lost of the great gospels. If it just ended, Christ came, he healed, he taught. He was obviously a gift from God. But then they just killed him, and that was the end of the story. Suppose that happened. Have you ever thought about the consequences of a life where even the Son of God could not take victory over the evil that exists in it? Where even God could not come up with a strategy to extricate men from the ravages of sin? What a hopeless place it would be. But that's not the end of the story, is it? The Son did come. He was rejected. He was put to death. But he rose again from the death, and promised that we would rise too, those who had faith in him. And for all of the stupid, finite, sin-blighted expectations of man, the death of Christ was not the end of the story. Just as the state of man in the first chapter of Romans, friends, is not the end of the story. I tell you that now as a preview, because it's very difficult to go through this passage and know that God is saying that about us. You know, there's an anecdote from the pre-colonial era here in Massachusetts where the great Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon from Romans 1 and taught people about their human depravity. And then he closed the book and he left the pulpit. And they said, but Mr. Edwards, is there no mercy with God? And he said, I'll tell you about that next week. It does us good to let the need for Christ settle in. Some of you are saying, I'm glad he's not our pastor. (laughs) Wrote the very famous sermon, Sinner in the Hand of an Angry God. People were literally hanging onto the pews expecting to fall into hell at any moment. And well, they should have thought that. Just as the state of man in the first chapter of Romans is not the end of the story, R.C. Sproul writes of this very thing in his commentary on Romans, which I found in the library Friday after the prayer meeting. You were there, Brian. I picked it up. It was wrapped up. One of the books from the Dumases, I opened it up, and I said, this is gold. So R.C. Sproul had this to say. Thanks be to God that Romans does not end here. The gospel 
The good news is coming, he says. People who do not care about the good news might care if they digest the bad news first and realize what our Savior has done and what he has saved us from and what he has saved us for and what he has saved us to. We are saved in order to be conformed to his image, to love the things he loves and to hate the things he hates. So let this chapter, friends, this awful picture of human life and development sink into your consciousness. And if it does not sink into the soul of those around us, then realize that it's the job of the evangelist to invoke man's depravity, to invoke God's judgment. Friends, your friends, your relatives, unsaved, unbelieving, they have no understanding of their need for Christ. The soul that does not see its own sinful state is not a soul that's ready to seek a judgment, or rather to seek a remedy, forgive me. It's my opinion that most men are generally content to wallow in the mire of their present existence. It's the natural reaction of the human species to reject God. It started, friends, it started with the first people, and then it started again in their children, Cain and Abel. And what did Cain do? The minute he was accused, he blame-shifted. What did Adam do the minute he was accused? He said, the woman that you gave me gave me the fruit and I ate. And she said, well, the serpent beguiled me, Lord, and I ate. And this is what we do. It wasn't me, it was him. That's part of the depravity too. It's my opinion that most men are generally content with their present existence. It's the natural reaction of the human species to reject God. We are a race of God-haters from the beginning. We are a race of idolaters a race of blind and hopeless self-servers. And that's what these passages are about. So the therefore in our verse is the conclusion. It's the cause whereby the society of men has been given up, friends, tossed aside by the Creator due to their willful evil. He doesn't want to look at it anymore. You remember the examples I gave you last week? The king of Moab threw his son over the wall, burnt and crucified, and his, the enemies were so disgusted by his sacrifice to his foolish, godless god, in disgust they turned away, they weren't even worth conquering. The sin disgusted them so much they just left. That's the picture of God with humanity. So they were tossed aside by the Creator due to our willful evil. And the willful evil of man is due to one thing, friends, their suppression of truth. What we know becomes what we do. If what we desire to do is unfettered to any moral authority outside ourselves, then there's nothing within us to restrain us from doing evil. You know, the Proverbs give some good advice about child-rearing. I'm sure you're familiar with some of the passages. Some of the passages about the father who does not withhold the rod from his son. He's the father who loves his son. And the one that withholds discipline. He's the hater of his own son, the scripture says. So the therefore in our verse is the conclusion. It's the cause whereby the society of men has been given up, tossed aside due to their suppression of truth. If what we do is not fettered to an authority outside ourselves, there's nothing to restrain us from continual evil. And so once we've discredited the nature of God and denied his attributes and have set ourselves free from him, 
then we're also free to do the things that give us the greatest delight and personal pleasure. No matter how low society may sink or how insane or self-destructive society becomes. There was a story in the news this week. I would imagine some of you have seen it. It illustrates this principle quite well. There was a criminal who committed the heinous act of setting his girlfriend's house on fire while she and others were still in it. Have you seen this? And he was freed by the court on his own recognizance. Now this nice man came out of the courtroom. He's on the steps. The media comes up. But I, know, I call him a nice man because he was wearing his mask. He's very, very concerned about other people, you see. So the man with the mask was saying to the reporter who caught him on the courthouse steps, the criminal himself attested to his guilt. And he also attested to the appalling ruling in his behalf. He said, I should be in jail. Have you seen this? You can't make this stuff up. He was appalled at the leniency of the court toward criminals. And it was his informed opinion. (laughs) I say informed opinion because he's a criminal, right? That such an approach will only embolden more and more crimes of that nature to be boldly committed. It's like saying, friends, if you want to kill your wife, this is your moment. The criminal himself can see the coming wave of societal deconstruction so long as there's nothing between wicked men and their wicked works. He knows right from wrong. Why? Because it's manifest in him. He's aware of the nature of men and their need for restraint and punishment as a deterrent for evil. He knows that men need something to keep them from doing the wicked thought they have in their mind at the moment. To give evil free reign is to put ourselves under the power of evil men. Friends, to defang the courts, to defund the police, is to give us up to ourselves with no restraint, restraining force, no justice, no grace. It is a picture of God leaving us to ourselves. And men can see it. You might say, of this man's obvious conclusion, that it's not rocket science, right? You would think it would be common sense. But this obvious truth is not hard to come by because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Friends, people know they're doing evil when they restrain the forces that keep us from doing evil. There's a theological name for the doctrine that describes the natural condition of all people. And that is the condition that they're born into. That's our natural condition. We're born in a certain condition. And it's called total depravity. It is the Bible's statement on the nature of man from birth. It's called total depravity. Have you heard it? It's the name of the doctrine that defines man. It's the name given to the moral state of all people apart from regeneration. And what's regeneration? Well, it's being born of God. It's being born again. It's a spiritual encounter with Christ by the intervention of the Holy Spirit that remakes the man. So there's the natural state, and then there's the supernaturally imposed state. The theological designation of total depravity was coined at the Synod of Dort, which is a city in Holland. And it was in 1618, that's two years before the pilgrims came to Plymouth. So the pilgrims were in Holland at that time. 
and knew well what was going on. The Synod was a meeting of 102 Christian pastors and theologians, mostly from Holland, but some from other places in Europe. It convened for 154 sessions over seven months in order to arrive at a defensible, excuse me, a defensible biblical doctrine regarding the nature of man. These men were concerned to know what the Bible said about them and to publish it to the world. And so the following is the conclusion of their deliberations. Here's what total depravity is. First of all, it does not mean certain things. It doesn't mean that every man is as evil as he could possibly be. All right? You have a lot more potential than the evil you're right now expressing. Nor does it mean that man is unable to recognize the will of God. Nor that he's unable to do any good towards his fellow man or even give outward allegiance to the worship of God. So what does it mean? Well, it means that when man fell in the Garden of Eden, Eden rather, his fall was total. The whole personality of the man has been affected by the fall, and sin extends to the whole of the faculties, the will, the understanding, the affections, and all else. We believe this to be irrefutably taught by the Word of God. Now, they arrived at this by searching the Scriptures, you see. They weren't going to Aristotle and Plato about these things. I'm not going to take this moment to discuss every aspect and every verse considered in their deliberations, but suffice it to say that the book of Romans contains what is perhaps the the most powerful biblical testimony of the reality of man's depravity. From chapter 3 of Paul's magnum opus here, we read this. He quotes from various sections of the Psalms and the prophets in this. And so he writes, There is none righteous. No, not one. Friends, if there was one righteous man in this world, Christ would not have come. Because that would mean that you could have attained what he gave to you on your own. The Bible says there's none righteous. No one. There's none who understands. We don't just seek out and and come to conclusions about God on our own. He has to reveal himself. What we know about God, we know from revelation. It's not, as we like to say in cliché, Oh, just trust your heart. Oh, look within yourself and all the answers are there. No, Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart of man is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things who can know the depth of its wickedness. The Bible has a totally different view, not so optimistic about man's potential to do good. There is none who seeks after God, he writes. They've all, gone, they've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Is it any wonder that the fathers of Dort concluded that man's depravity was total? (laughs) The doctrine is one of the five essential truths that have become known as the doctrines of grace, which we adhere to in this church and in our founding documents. It's nicknamed the five points of Calvinism, but you should know that Calvin had nothing to say about these because he died 54 years before 1618. He died in in 1564. They were named in honor 
of Calvin as an esteemed theologian of the era. Along with four other doctrines, which are named unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, the acrostic tulip has been used to remember them in their logical salvific order. We'll not talk about all that today, but I thought I'd bring it up. Because they didn't just discuss total depravity, they discussed if man's totally depraved, how does he get saved? And the other points logically fell into place. Friends, if you understand point one, the nature of man, you have perfect access to understand the conclusions they made about the other four doctrines. J.C. Ryle, great 19th century Protestant preacher from the Anglican tradition, he makes this essential connection. He wrote, there are very few errors and false doctrines of which the beginning may not be traced up to unsound views about the corruption of human nature. Wrong views of a disease will always bring with them wrong views of a remedy. Wrong views of the corruption of human nature will always carry with them wrong views of the grand antidote and cure to that corruption. You have to know your need for Christ, your total need. And so just as it is essential for us to have a proper understanding of Romans 1 and the world of men in which we live, it's equally essential for us to recognize that the crucifixion of Christ is the only lifeline thrown into this world of eternal despair by which we must be saved. He is God's crowning effort to call men out of their inherent depravity and the depravity that extends to their mind and their soul, and to remake them in the image of him who called them. And so the apostle, after the groundwork of Romans 1 is laid, will develop this theme as the blessed lifeline throughout the book of Romans. So let's read ahead a little bit. Romans 8. Friends, go to Romans 8 tonight when you get home and read it. And it will lift your spirits and bless your heart. And there are more memory verses in that chapter, perhaps, than any other in the Bible. But it begins with these words. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I thought God gave us up. He did. But he threw the lifeline. And it's only one lifeline. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, the apostle wrote. And how about this? I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love, them, love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Hallelujah. The King James comes out in me every now and then. Can't help it. Friends, there's simply no path to salvation in Christ if we've not recognized our need for Christ. There's no path to life for those who believe they have made their own path. There's no cure apart from the diagnosis. Friends, you've got to get the MRI first. You've got, to, you've got to know what's inside. And so the apostle continues to lay out the sad reality of human depravity. We read of the mass of men. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature. Friends, you know what that's called? There's a, name, there's a philosophical name for serving the creature, serving yourself. 
putting man in God's place. It's called humanism. You've heard of humanism. You've heard of secular humanism, right? It's not all that secular. It's a religion. It's a religion that puts man in the place of God. You know, there's a great painting from the Renaissance. Bring it up on your phones after the service. Raphael, one of the great high Renaissance painters of the, uh, of the 1500s at a time when Michelangelo painted and Leonardo da Vinci painted. And Raphael has this great painting called The School of Athens. Have you heard of it? Have you seen it? Well, it shows this great uh, hall, this great symposium hall, and there are steps, and there are all these people standing around, and there's two men in the middle walking down the steps. You familiar with it? I know Daniel is. Well, what Raphael did in the School of Athens painting is he showed all the great minds, great philosophers, great mathematicians. Euclid, the father of geometry, is over on the side. In fact, in those days, uh, the painters liked to put a little picture of themselves. There's a little self-portrait of Raphael over in the corner. But walking down the center stairs are two figures of men. One is like this, and the other is like this. And the one that's like this is Plato, because Plato recognized deity. He was not a Christian, but he was a monotheist, if you will. And then there was Aristotle, who was famous for saying, man is the measure of all things. So Raphael had him pictured with his hand down to the earth, and and the deist with his hand to the heavens. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature. That's humanism. That's trusting that man is the measure of all things. And we understand our existence by employing our own reason, not caring that it came as a gift from God, not even believing that. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And the creator is blessed forever. Amen. I mean, he doesn't even bring up the creator without saying who is blessed forever. Amen. And so we need to understand exactly what's meant by the phrase, the lie. Notice he says the lie. He didn't say they believed a lie. He said they believed the lie. He uses the definite article, the the. Remember your your grammar. The is definite. A is indefinite. A and an are indefinite. It's the lie. It's the truth. There is but one. So Paul says that mankind has exchanged the truth for the lie. Remember the Greek language is a very accurate language. It says thee, it means thee. In other words, there's one essential truth, and we may call it the truth. And there's one essential lie, friends, and we may call it the lie. So what, are, what is the truth, and what is the lie? Well, the truth is expressed throughout the written word. But it may be succinctly stated in some of the well-known verses of Scripture. How about this? In the beginning, God. That's the truth. There it is. In the beginning refers to the beginning of creation. Before the beginning, there was nothing but God. God was there preceding the beginning. It's stated again to Moses when Moses asked God his name. And God answered similarly, I am, he said. I am the Lord your God. What does I am mean? It means I exist. God proclaimed himself. His name proclaims himself. I exist, you shall have no other gods, because there are no others but the ones you make, as Isaiah said, who cannot speak, (laughs) but this God spoke. So God's name is I Am. Names in the biblical record generally have meanings and not just attractive sounds. We have all these names together today that don't mean anything. 
They're just attractive sounds. We like them. They're more like, names in the Bible were more like labels, like we're a vessel or a bottle, and the name tells what's in the bottle, as well a label should, right? So they're more like labels that tell us something about the contents. Moses, we know, means drawn from the water. You remember when he was a baby, he was in the basket made of bulrushes, and he floated down to Pharaoh's daughter, and you know the story. He was drawn from the water, so they named him drawn from the water. Whenever they said, what their ear heard when they said, Moses, come here, it sounded like this, drawn from the water, come here. And so there were other names, Abraham, Abraham, father of a multitude, Isaac means laughter because his mother laughed when she found out he was going to be born. God's name is I exist. His name tells what's in the package. I exist. He, he could say more, but you wouldn't understand it. It's enough to know that he's real. He proclaims himself. And there's nothing else you need to know. Remember, Jacob's name was changed after he wrestled with God. His name was Jacob, which meant supplanter, which had to do with his relationship with his brother Esau, right? He took his blessing, remember? This might, uh, and so uh, it was exchanged for his relationship with God. He was called Israel, meaning God strives. This might be a good place to note that Paul had a former name, Saul, which meant asked of God. But Paul was so... Humbled by his experience with Christ, he named himself Paul, which means little. Called himself little. So if your name's Paul, that's your name. If your name's Paula, it's the same thing. And then, so that's the truth. That's the truth. God exists. I am. And then there's the lie, simply stated by the serpent, who said to Eve, you will not surely die. There's the lie. They exchanged the truth for the lie. God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit of the garden, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There's the lie. You'll be like God. Eat, essentially, and you'll be God. You'll have no more need of him. And so it's their belief in the lie that's the reason for their abandonment by God. Man found a new God, and as I told you last week, now he has to find a new garden. Can't live in this one. God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. In other words, they already had vile passions. So rather than come in, God defunded the police. No more police to keep you from doing your vile passions. You just come in. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what's against nature. You know, commentators make a lot of the fact that Paul said, even their women. You know something? Historically, friends, we expect our women to uphold morality longer than we do. But he said, in this case, even the women fell. Even the women exchanged the natural use for what's against nature. And so we have this wonderfully descriptive and controversial verse. God gave them up. I don't suppose there's too many preachers this morning or any morning that will choose this as their sermon topic. I hope there's more than I presume Notice that in his indignation, God gave them up, but he did not eradicate his creation. He gave them up, but he preserved them. He did not punish them per se. Did you notice that? Wrath is anger. We labored over that last week. It's not specific punishment. It's God's anger being vented. He did not even rebuke them. Rather, he gave them up. Not to their enemies, friends, but to themselves. To their own vile passions. 
He gave us up to ourselves. Fathers, don't do that with your children. Oh, they might grow out of it. They might. I wouldn't bet on that. I look around and I see what happens to young people who are not restrained by loving parents. So I hope you've observed that our society is fraught with rampant indecency. I, hope that, I think that's easy to observe these days. And I've heard some Christian voices claiming that we'll be punished by God for such blatant and widespread sinfulness. Well, I'm certain that at some time in the future that will be the case. We'll be punished by God. But for now, we're not punished. We're simply abandoned. For an illustration of this principle, I'll refer you to the parable of the prodigal son. Perfect illustration of this principle. The son did not want the father. There it is, right? He did not want what the father wanted. You know the parable, I'm assuming. I'm assuming great New Testament knowledge in the church this morning. He wanted to take what he perceived was his, and therefore his to squander, and to squander it on what? To invest it wisely in the stock market or his 401k or buy some land? No, he just wanted to spend it on his own lusts and his earthly delights. The perfect description of what Paul's describing here. And so the father left him to himself. Here's the money. Go about your business. That's the Lord's picture of Romans 1. And only after a long and intense battle with the world, after being wronged and defrauded, who knew that would happen out there? He was used, friends, until he was used up. Only then did he recall the love and security of his father's house. If you remember, he said, even the servants, meaning the slaves, in my father's house receive better than I'm getting out here. I think I'll go back and just beg to be a servant. Friends, he loved the world and the things in the world, as John wrote, so the love of the Father was not in him. You can't have both. And so he found his dream world was a virtual pigsty. But as I wrote that, I realized it wasn't a virtual pigsty. It was a literal, actual pigsty. That's where he ended up. And why is the world of Jesus' parable a pigsty? Because he ate what the pigs ate. He communed with the pigs. Have you ever heard this? Oh, they say pigs are, all, pigs are uh, badly treated. They're, they're thought to be dirty animals. Really, they're clean. That's the lie. <laughs> the truth is they're dirty animals. I grew up with a lot of pigs around. Don't let me tell the stories. I know I've told them before. You ever go down Route 24 in the summer in Bridgewater? <laughs> That's the pigsty you're smelling. To all those who chose the worldly life, the life of unfettered self-expression, there's no help coming for you. God has given you up. You've chosen a life of unbridled expression of passions over the loving, curtailing passions in the house of their father. Is God a killjoy? Only of the things that are bad for you. They're spending their inheritance on strength, their inheritance. We all have an inheritance, right? We have strength, we have health. A lot of our unsaved friends are healthy and happy and prosperous in the world. Oh, but they don't know where those gifts come from. They have education. They have a heritage in their family. They have all these things, and they're wasting it on whores and riotous living. Once again, the King James is coming out in me. I looked up the word whore as I wrote that. I wanted to see what it said. You know what it said? 
It's a, a derogatory way of referring to a prostitute. I mean, that's, that's our current view. No, prostitute's a cleaned-up way of referring to what, he really, what she really is, which is a whore. It's totally backwards. They exchange the truth for the lie, even when you're talking about whores. Verse 27, likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Friends, the, rest, the reference in these last two verses to the heinous sin of homosexuality is inescapable. It's inescapable. And it's rampant in society. I can't even watch a commercial on television of my own bank without seeing the lovely white picket fence and the two men and their children and the kiss and the intimacy that's all exchanged. I can't even see normal things anymore. I'm ever amazed at the speed in which society has decided to shame itself. Boy, this has really accelerated in the last few years. In a purely libertarian way, friends, I have no desire to tell other people how to live or who to love. But for an otherwise intelligent person to pretend that what two homosexuals, be they men or women, have between themselves is equivalent to what married men and women have in their marriages is the most striking example of being given over to a debased mind. All right, you have love between you. You've made a commitment for life, let's say. And to say that's the same thing as a man has with his wife is perversion of thought not retaining God in their knowledge. You can't retain those two things in the same mind. You can't have God in there and, have, and, and also the thought that that is a right situation before him. They're doing those things which are not fitting. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And note this, the penalty of their error for now is not in hell. For now. It's within themselves. You are your own living hell, is what he's saying. Why? Because God is not there. The error is due. You've earned it. And they're paying for it in this life. They're receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. Friends, I remember a time when a friend once asked me, he asked me if I thought that God would judge the world for its headlong dive into homosexuality. Or rather, I, I remember asking a friend. It was the early part of when we founded the church. And I asked him, do you think God will judge the world for the rampant homosexuality? And he said, according to Romans 1, rampant homosexuality is the judgment of God upon man. We're a society given over to licentiousness as though all choices are equally valid and equally righteous. But sadly, our present judgment is not based on rampant homosexuality by itself, for there are other societal sins that are destroying us in our lifetime. Friends, I know evangelicals love to focus on homosexuality because most of us don't have that particular predilection to sin. But we have all the others. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Get ready for the list. And remember one thing. In the, in the New Testament, lists of sins are incomplete lists. Paul doesn't have time or parchment to list them all. But he gives a pretty good list here. 
And I find that it's very convicting even for the church. Maybe especially for the church because we know it's God's word. Those things which are not fitting that are filled with unrighteousness start with sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness. Friends, there is so much covetousness in the church. And what is it? That striking out against God for giving someone something that you wish he gave you and didn't give to them. It's sort of a contest in your heart. Maliciousness. I'll go into some of the definitions of this in the next session, but full of envy. I find envy to be the scourge of the church in this day. I've seen, and we haven't seen this in a long time, but problems that emanate out of the church body are always traceable to envy, and if you name it, it inflames the envious. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. In other words, just your thoughts. When you're not doing evil, you're thinking about it. In, uh, they are whisperers. What's that mean? They're in the dark. Remember, they're in the dark because their deeds are evil. Lest they come to the light, their deeds be exposed. They're whispers. They're in the dark. They're backbiters because they don't come to your front. They're haters of God. They're violent, proud, boasters. Get this one. Inventors of evil things. Like there's not enough natural evil, we got to invent more. Inventors of evil things. In my old Bible, I wrote, it, next to inventors of evil things, I wrote Dr. Kevorkian. You remember him? He invented a way for people to commit euthanasia on themselves because suicide was illegal there. It's, it's not illegal everywhere now. But today, I would write there, inventors of evil things, I would write gain-of-function research. Disobedient to parents. Notice that's one of the most heinous sins that Paul did not leave out of his list. Young people. Disobedient to parents, undiscerning. We say, Oh, I pray for the gift of discernment. You're supposed to have discernment. You have the word of God. To be undiscerning is sin. Untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, a lot of uns, unmerciful. Can you imagine a Christian being unmerciful when he was received mercy from God? Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. That's like saying, I wouldn't do it, but I won't step on your right to do it. And I think of abortion when I say that. Now, I hope up to take up with this section again next session. So we've got to struggle through this sometime longer. You wanted Romans? You got it. It is readily apparent that there's a long list of sins and sinful attitudes that offend God, beyond homosexuality, by the way, right? It's as if our whole society is daring God to strike it down. We haven't done enough evil, we'll invent more. We're inventors of evil things. For the moment, let me focus on two points with regard to these verses, the first point and the last point, and I'll close with those today. The first point Sin begins when? When we do not like to retain God in our knowledge. Friends, when you invite people to church, and they come, and we have a very nice time together, and you don't see them anymore, they don't want to think about those concepts. Now, if they came in, and I told them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and just developed that, they would stay forever. But they'd never know anything. They would know very little about God. So the first thing is we don't like to keep God in our minds, in our knowledge. It does not say that we eject him from our minds, but rather he's not particularly welcomed there. 
We don't mind saying, oh my God, or God damn, God forbid, right? We don't mind saying that, but otherwise we don't want him in our thoughts. We would just as soon not think about God, certainly not a demanding God. Who wants a demanding God? I want a God that makes me a country singer. Certainly we don't want a righteous God looking over our shoulder all the time. The second point of interest to me today is the last part. It's those who approve of sin are as guilty as those who practice it. Friends, in the church, we have to be careful of these two things. These are ways the world gets into the church. I'm reading a book someone gave me. It's, it's really excellent. It's called The Christian Left. You know, the left does not want to eradicate the church. The left is making the church its own tool. Most of the practicing religions out there believe all this stuff. Believe all this positive thinking stuff. They don't believe Romans 1. They've already developed the gospel of self-esteem. God exists to be my little genie in the lamp and give me my wishes. My, even the genie only had three, I believe. So we just assume not think about God. The second point of interest to me today is the, the last part, and it's my fear. It's my observation that the church is guilty of both. We would rather not think about, preach about, talk about, live under a God who lives in our thought life and constantly convicts us of our many sins and the sins of our society and of our Christian family. And the church is constantly under the onslaught of worldly pressure to relent from holding to the sin part of the gospel. And that's where I say the left has made great use of the church. They've got them to say, you know, we'll have more people come if we just don't tell them the truth about sin. So we suppress the truth in unrighteousness and don't retain God in our knowledge and we go on merrily with the cross on the building calling ourselves a church. And the left has made what? Useful idiots of us all. R.C. Sproul once again. He said a recent Gallup poll reported that the incidence of fornication. Now what's fornication? It's cohabitation. It's, it's a sexual relationship outside of the marriage bond. All right? Fornication and adultery among born-again Christians is, is, is not measurably different from that of unconverted pagans. And it's so true with divorce as well. All of these things that are heinous sins in Paul's list are equally in the church as they are in the world, or very little difference, according to Gallup. So R.C. Sproul writes, truly regenerate Christians do fall into these sins. Friends, you have to recognize something. Christians do sin, and they sin greatly. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not a Christian. They might not be, an unrepentant sin over long periods of time seems to indicate that they're not because there should be some conviction of the Holy Spirit on a born-again Christian. But Christians sin, and so he writes, it should be a radical exception to Christian behavior, not a generally accepted practice. So even in the places where we do fall into these things, it ought to be very rare, and we all ought not approve of it. Today, people get their behavioral cues not from what God says is acceptable, but from the culture. And there it is. And that's how I say the left makes us useful to their causes. If we're to endure to the end in our faith toward God, we have to hold fast to our mission, to repent of sins among us, and to preach and teach the whole counsel of God and live by the dictum that God's word never hurts God's people. 
I downloaded that from Martin Lloyd-Jones' writings many years ago. God's word can be very harsh, but it never hurts God's people. And if the church would stop trying to be a reflection of the world, but model itself to be what it should be, a refuge from the world, we will be in the right place before God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, these are indeed dire diagnoses, and we can see from the world around us that they are as true now as they were when Paul penned them. Father, in Jesus' name, let Christ be real among us and in the church. And Father, bless us as we gather together for fellowship after this service, as we gather around the table of food that you have provided, and let us be truly thankful for all your gifts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.